Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. morning church family how we doing good I got a little bit of this cold that's been going around still and it's kind of lingering just lingering for anybody else as well yeah a bunch of sickies in here huh Um, especially if you have kids huh Um, well I'm excited to get to teach um, for you today let me get there uh, my name is Corey again. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Good to be your teaching pastor uh, for today. Very excited to uh, look at the book of Acts. We're just going to look at the book for about four weeks, uh, just doing a series called More of the Same. Uh, and then at the end of this four weeks, we're going to kick off a book uh, called Nehemiah. And we're going to spend uh, probably 16 weeks in Nehemiah, I think. It ends up being the, the end of May is where we'll kind of land at, which is kind of crazy that May will just be here just all of a sudden. And so just for like my own... Um, I don't own curiosity. How many of you ever have been in a teaching in this setting such as this on the book of Nehemiah? Look around. Everybody look around real quick. Yeah, well, I've never taught it, so we're all in for a treat, right? So uh, it's going to be great. There's uh, Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. They go together. Uh, Ezra really is about building, rebuilding the temple of God, and Nehemiah is about worshiping in that temple. And so uh, we just kind of thought as pastors, like we have kind of built out this temple, so to speak. If, you're, if you know anything about Heights, we just moved in this building about a year ago. We've doubled in size. We've figured out new systems. We've hired five more people. We've done a, a lot to kind of build the temple, if I may. Uh, but we need to make sure that we always are uh, maintaining a healthy posture of worship, not just worshiping not worshiping the temple at all, but worshiping within this temple and then with outside uh, in the culture as well. And so Nehemiah uh, will help with that. Nehemiah is not a book you preach because you want to grow your church numerically. Uh, it is a book you preach because you want to grow your church spiritually and in maturity. And so we're going to spend 16 weeks uh, in that book. should take us until the end of May. Today is a series, though, four weeks, a little vision series on uh, what, we call, what we're calling uh, more of the same in the church of Antioch. And so let me set up Antioch for you. Uh, this is going to be the longest introduction to a sermon I've ever done. It's going to even include points. It's going to be 35 to 40 minutes long. It's going to be over. We're going to go over on time. I didn't even hit the third point in the first service, okay? So uh, it's going to be the longest introduction I've ever done for you. And then next week, I'm going to sum it all up. Sound good? Yeah, new people are like, I don't know what I signed up for, man. I thought we were going to be at Denny's, and all of a sudden, now this is where we're at. Uh, This year marks uh, 10 years of faithful ministry uh, for us as a church body. Uh, In March, we will actually hit our 10-year anniversary, 10-year celebration. So 10 years then of faithfully sharing the gospel as Heights Church initially, and then through Emerge and the other parts of our story, if you know, into Heights community. And so whenever I started Heights, uh, there was only seven of us uh, at at that time. And uh, it was Andrea and myself. Andrea is my wife. Uh, It was uh, Pastor Jeff we just call him Jeff, but Pastor Jeff, who uh, just led so faithfully through worship with the team, and his wife, uh, Whitney. It was John and Carol Sparks, who I don't believe are in this service. Uh, last service, I was like, John and Carol, I don't think they're in here, and all these hands pointed, like like blinking lights to them, and I was like, oh, they're right there. And so John and Carol Sparks were there. Matt Whitten, before there was a Kelly Whitten, so he got to marry up as part of that process, and uh, he really hit it. He hit the lotto on coming to Heights, you know, and so... 
there was just uh, seven of us. And I would sit, man, and I would talk with people about like what we were hoping for. And I'm like learning how to cast vision and learning how to like share who we are and what we want to see. And, and I was all fired up. And I don't like emote a whole lot, you know, on stage a little bit. And in normal conversation, you're like, I don't even know how to read this guy. Is he making a joke? Is he not? Is he sad? Where's he at? Uh, that's just who I am. And, um, but normally, like, you know, if there's something that excites me, it's worth talking about, you know? And so I'm sitting with these people, I'm all fired up, and I'm like, we're starting a church. And they're like, there's seven of you. I'm like, yeah, but you could be number eight, you know? Like, do you want to come? And they're like, no. And like, okay. And they're like, well, you don't. And I'm like, wait, we're starting this church, and there's not a church like it in the Metro East. And like, they're like, you don't have any money. And I'm like, that's why I'm here. I was wondering if maybe you could give us some of your money, as a matter of fact. And they're like, to start something that hasn't, do you want me to contribute to something that doesn't exist? I'm like, yes. And they're like, no. I'm like, all right, got it. I'm like, you don't have a building. And I'm like, I know, the, build, the church is not a building. It's a people. We're going to do this thing called missional community, and we're going to like teach people how to learn what the gospel is and how to use it as a framework and how to apply it to their personal stories and how to apply it to people across the table from them. And we're going to put this big emphasis on actually doing stuff throughout the week and not just coming in and settling on a Sunday. And literally, I was sitting with a guy in a donut shop one day, and he goes, do you think anyone's going to come to this thing? And I was like, I have no idea, but I feel called, and I'm going to be faithful to the call. And so this is what we're going to do. And then, it, keep that in mind, it was, it was Christians, though, that I was meeting with. And it was Christians that were so apprehensive to a new work in their community. It was Christians that were apprehensive to uh, the mission. And so as I continued to set with them, they would give me even greater pushback. And they would say some things like, well, why would you put a church in Collinsville? No one would ever go to Collinsville. So just a little show of hands. How many of you came from outside of Collinsville this morning to worship Jesus? <laughs> Take that 10 years later, suckers. <laughs> and so... People will come. Turns out, part of the sermon today, the gospel will lead you in the areas that you perhaps do not want to find yourself, yeah? And then they would say things like, why do we need another church? Aren't there enough churches? There's like 40 churches in Collinsville alone, which is true. And I would say, well, there's 1,614 people for every one church, and average church attendance is 40. And so that means there's at least 16, 1,500 people that could, they need a church still. And they're like, bro, you lost me at 1,600 something. I was like, I get it. But these are things I need to know, and these are things that you need to know. And it was Christians, though, that they would just push back on this stuff. It was Christians that didn't want to be challenged. It was Christians that didn't want to experience change. It was Christians that didn't want to get put out of their comfort zone. But it was the non-believers that were easy to work with. It was the skeptics that I enjoyed being around the most, actually, during those times and those conversations. And as part of uh, starting a church in our network, it's called Acts 29, you have to have 40 committed uh, adults, not just kiddos, right? Because if that's the case, it'd be like four families total and a plethora of children here, right? You have to have 40 actual adults, okay? You're 18 years or older, and you can contribute something, not seven. And so you'd have 40 adults. And at that time, what was beautiful is of the 40 people that helped us plant Heights Church, uh, 10 of those people were non-Christians. They didn't believe the same gospel. You know, they believed a gospel. They just didn't believe the gospel that, that we were peddling. But they believed in the mission. They believed in benevolence and hospitality. Right? They were, they, now, many of them obviously ended up coming to faith, and they've been a part of our church for almost 10 years. But it was the non-believers that wanted to be challenged. It was the non-believers that wanted to be pushed out of their comfort zone. It was unbelievable. Well, this is no different than what was happening here in the book of Acts a couple thousand years ago. 2,000 years ago, it was the Jews, the religious, the moral, 
right? It was them that did not want to be challenged. They didn't want to be pushed out of their comfort zone. They didn't want to step into a territory that felt uncomfortable for them. And it wasn't until their friend was killed that they're actually forced to move into a a territory that's uncomfortable for them. And that territory is called Antioch. It's a pagan, what's called a pagan territory. And so it wasn't a Jewish territory. It was a non-Jewish territory. And when they get to this uh, non-Jewish pagan territory in a city of Antioch, they just preach the gospel to these non-believers. And what do you think they do? Man, they respond. They start to respond to the gospel. They don't come in there putting any sauce on it. They're just coming and saying, hey, y'all have a lot of saviors, but you don't have a Lord. And, and we know who this Lord is. And we believe once you submit to him as Lord, you'll also find out that he's your savior. And you can turn away from all these other things that you're kind of looking to, to find identity and to find purpose and to find value, that he can meet all your deepest needs. By the way, his name is Jesus. And so they go in and they preach the gospel. They don't cower back in any way. They're like, here's, what is, here's who has changed us. Now we want to introduce him to you. And in so doing, setting this up, this is a big intro for next week. The expanse of the gospel that happened was next to what happened in Pentecost, if you know anything about your Bible. And it's been continuing to happen ever since, so much so that the way that those Jewish folks loved people in the gospel, there had never been anything that had ever happened like that, including Pentecost. The way that they bridged the cultural divide and the way that racism began to get pushed down and affluency, like they began to bridge the gap between all of these different ethnicities and this very affluent culture. And all they did, church family, was remain faithful to the gospel. For 10 years, we've remained faithful to the gospel. That's the only thing I got for you. How many times have I stood up and said, I only got one sermon. I just know how to give it to you about 35 different ways every year, Right? And so we get asked that all the time. How do you, what do you contribute to the health of Heights? What do you contribute to the growth of Heights? And we say, we just remain faithful to Jesus. We remain faithful to the gospel. And in our lack of faith, we go, oh, thank you for being my savior. Renew my faith for me again. And then we try again, yeah? So the call today, the big idea for you today is this. The gospel call is to remain faithful. The gospel call is to remain faithful. Faithful. If you're taking notes, if you're viewing online, thanks for tuning in online. Gospel calls to remain faithful. Three simple points to help us uh, get you there. I am going to back you into a corner. Uh, It will not be fun, but it will be worth it. Uh, Gospel faithfulness and suffering. First point, their friend dies. Uh, Gospel faithfulness within the culture. Actually, in Antioch. I'm going to teach you a lot about Antioch today. Again, just kind of setting us up for next week. And then gospel faithfulness and celebration, if we get to that point. <laughs> if not, it'll be the first point next week, and we'll continue. Um, so we're just setting in these, these scriptures. So four weeks, uh, just a couple verses here. So, All right, gospel faithfulness and suffering. You ready? All right, let's hit it. Acts 11, uh, 19 through 23 total. We're looking at 19 right now. Here we go. i throw it up for you. Uh, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over... Uh, Stephen, that's the Jewish folks that were following Stephen, walking with Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, which we're going to talk a lot about, uh, speaking the word, that just means the gospel, explaining the scriptures to the people, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And so it's just important to note here that these Jews, 
Although they had professed faith in Jesus, they did not step outside of their little circle, their little ethnic circle. They didn't do cross-cultural mission at that time, not, not in the way like we get to see now. There wasn't a framework or a worldview for that. They just kind of reclused and stayed in their circles, and they would kind of share the gospel with other Jews, but they wouldn't share the gospel with Africans or Asians or anyone else like they're going to find in Antioch. They couldn't even see them or find them because they were just simply in Jewish a territory. And so it's important to note here that there's a name named Stephen, a name Stephen. And so Stephen has come earlier in the book of Acts. He's this faithful dude. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's a good, godly man. And in, uh, in, in his profession of Christ and his believing the gospel, submitting to Jesus Christ as both Lord and also as Savior, it is the religious, just the Jews now, that come alongside him and they give a false accusation against him um, that is so intense that they are now forced as Jews to stone him to death. Sounds like a bad Tuesday, doesn't it? And so keep in mind here as we're getting into this, that it was the religious that killed Stephen who was sharing the gospel. It was the morally upright that killed Stephen, right, in these moments. It was his fellow brothers that killed him. The Jews are the ones that killed him. They bring a false charge against him. And if you know anything about Jesus, it sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Who was it that killed Jesus? It was the religious folks that killed Jesus. What do you think they're going to do to you when you go to share the gospel with them? You wonder why we get upset with church folks, but they've been doing this ever since then, yeah? And so before Stephen dies, he shares the gospel uh, with the very men that are aiming uh, to kill him. And he starts kind of in the beginning. He's like, all right, I'm going to need everybody to stand for the reading of God's word here. We're going to start in Genesis 1. And, and so these, these men, he starts to proclaim the gospel. What I mean by that is he starts to tell the story of God and how every single word, every dot, every iota, every comma, every scripture, every chapter, every book, every reference, everything in this book points to Jesus Christ as the central focus and um, most important figure in all of the scriptures. Every single bit of it is going to take you to Jesus. Just like if you're driving through St. Louis, you might not know your way around St. Louis, but you can see the arch, right? You can kind of navigate your way to the arch. Now, you might take some back alleys you shouldn't take, right? You might not know exactly how to get there. You might hit some roadblocks, but eventually you can navigate your way to the arch. So it is with the scriptures. It might not be a straight shot to Jesus, but whenever you begin to learn the scriptures and learn the story of God, you see how all these stories begin to correlate, and then in totality, they begin to paint a picture of the need of a Messiah. This is who God's people are, born, born in perfection. They enter into sin. God promises a Messiah. He sends that Messiah. Lo and behold, his name is Jesus. That's the gospel. That's all that it is. And so Stephen takes them through that, and he says, hey, here's how this thing you believe about your religion points to Jesus. Here's how this scripture points to Jesus. Here's how the sacraments point to Jesus. Here's your role in it. You didn't do anything. You killed Jesus. Actually, that brought me redemption. Thank you for killing Jesus, right? Just like they're killing him. And so he literally takes them through the gospel. Listen, and in the, like, in the midst of him, them taking, him taking them, sorry, him taking them through this good gospel narrative, grand narrative of Christianity, they kill him. They literally lob stones at his body until he dies. It wasn't a quick death, right? It was like a morbid death is what he had to experience. And it was the religious folks that did that. The question I want to ask you this morning is we're talking about the importance of sharing the gospel to the professing Christian in the room is what is your price? What is your price 
to denounce everything you say you believe about Jesus? What would it take? You don't have to say it out loud, obviously, but just think about it with me for a minute. Is it the possible like, execution of a spouse? Because that happens every day in the Middle East. Is it someone threatening your kids? Would that be enough for you to go, no, nah, I don't believe in them. You can take this, Jesus. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Is it job loss? Loss of money? Well, I think the sad thing about it is, if we're really being honest up here, is I think that the cost for the majority of us in the church is just reputation. I think it's self-preservation. If self-preservation is too wordy for you, then you can just write on reputation. I think self-preservation is enough. The idol of self-preservation is enough that whenever we stand in front of someone, man, and they're just longing for something more than whatever they've created in their life to bring them value. Self, the, the idol of self-preservation is enough to go, I'm not willing to share with you the very individual person being God that could set you free from what you're struggling. I care so much about the reality that you might look down upon me, you might think less of me, you might, my reputation might be at risk here. I care so much about myself that I'm not willing to actually step into the difficult, maybe difficult, maybe super easy conversation that says, you've been looking for saviors your whole life and I have found not only the savior of your life, but the Lord of your life and his name is Jesus. And there ain't a thing about him that he sought to preserve. He let go of literally everything that he had to live a life for you, to die a death for you, to empower you with his spirit. Time is gonna be rough and hard. Suffering is going to come. Oh, but you can find trust and hope in Jesus. Yeah, maybe someone looks at you and thinks less of you, but what if, but just, let's just pretend for a minute, like we're Christians, what if this is true? Well, who cares what they think about us, yeah? Like, we don't care what they, cares what you think about me. I don't wanna walk around just being a turd, you know? I'm not saying that. What I am saying is who cares, right? The Bible says suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance. It doesn't say suffering produces self-preservation. That's the definition of idolatry. Whenever difficulty comes and I take matters in my own hands to make my life and situation seem better, that's the very idol of self-preservance. Listen to me. It does not save a thing. It does not preserve a thing. It just leaves you wanting more and more more. We'll get to that in a little bit. Listen, I got to be clear here. The death of Stephen is what God used to push these Jews outside of their comfort zone, outside of their circle, into the territory of Antioch. They didn't run into Antioch just wielding the gospel, like, hey, we're going to see all these people come to faith. They, hate, they would have hated the reality of going to Antioch. But God uses suffering, not self-preservation, to lead these men into uncharted territories, a place they would not want to go. Why? Because they were not sharing the gospel with the nations. They weren't sharing the gospel with anyone else. So a question David reminded me of earlier is this. In your failure to share the gospel, where do you think God might send you? Like you're scared of a conversation you might have to have at the cubicle at work, but he might send you somewhere much more dark and dangerous. You might want to err on the side of sharing the gospel, yeah? Secondly, gospel faithfulness within the culture then, okay? Gospel faithfulness in the culture, point number two. God sends these Jewish men into Antioch into a culture they would not have wanted to be in. Verse 20 says this. But there were some of them, 
okay? Men of Cyprus and Cyrene, just from Jewish places, who on coming to Antioch, very much not Jewish, spoke to the Hellenists, that's a word for Greek, just a certain sect of Greek, uh, also preaching, what? What does it say? The Lord Jesus. Somebody say the Lord Jesus. It's important. We'll come back to it. And the hand of the Lord was on them, on those men. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So clearly the hand of the Lord was on those who professed faith as well, yeah? So these Jewish men, we're going to camp out in Antioch for a second. I promise I'm taking you somewhere. The Jewish men, they scatter. They end up coming to the city called Antioch, not because they wanted to, because that's where the the Lord took them in their suffering and fear. And there could not have been um, a more uncomfortable place than Antioch for some Jews to end up during this time, probably even still today if they're keeping to uh, the law. And and here's why. Uh, First off, the Jews believed that if you didn't keep the law, like in its completion, uh, then you were considered unclean. And not only were you considered unclean, but then you could no longer be in relationship with God because they believed that if you kept all the rules in this thing, then that's what would actually give you favor before the Lord and give you relationship with God. And praise God for the gospel that we get to receive because we get to fail at keeping that law, yeah? Not, not in licentiousness, but just in reality. And so the Jews would come and they would think, not only did you have to keep the law to be in relationship with God, but if you did not keep the law, you were considered unclean. Antioch did not have Jews in it keeping the law. Antioch had Africans, Antioch had Asians, Antioch had a, a plethora of other ethnicities were there, but not Jews who sought to keep the law or either, or either what was called God-fearers who were people that sought to keep the law of God. Antioch was highly affluent, highly urban, highly dense city. It was only about five square miles wide, just in general, about five square total miles. And think about this now, there were no skyscrapers at all. So everything's level, everything's on the ground. Not only were there no skyscrapers, but there, were, uh, there was no sewage systems either. And so you have 500,000 people square, uh, what, crammed into about five uh, cube, what, square miles, is the way maybe we can say it like that. Uh, and it would have been very disgusting and very foul. If you're having a hard time picturing that, uh, imagine all of you in this room, about 200 of you, have to live on one of the acres that we have here at Heights. We have eight acres of land if you think about our footprint. Imagine just 200 of you, all of you, have to live on an acre of land. That's a, a little bit about, I don't know, less than the, it's not the whole parking lot. It's about maybe half or a quarter of the parking lot, something like that. Yeah, a quarter of the parking lot. Thanks, I got the, I got the nod from the, the missions pastor here. He approves So you have 200 of you there. You have no sewage system. 200 of you have to live on a quarter of the parking lot. And now you've got to have a place to live. So now you have to build your huts. You have to have a way to make money. So you have to build your shops. You've got your chicken coops. You're like, oh, it's so earthy. I love it. so crunchy. And very Colorado, that Antioch, you know? Antioch, Colorado? Was that a place? It was just kidding. Um, And you have to live there. It would have been, listen, and no sewage system. I keep trying to reiterate, no sewage system. Because Pastor David's in here. If you know him, you know he doesn't like to be touched. And so in the first service, I was like, just picture David is walking with his open toe sandals, you know, and he just like steps and it just like just shoots through there. Everyone's touching him and rubbing on his beautiful bald head and like Antioch. Okay. That's what Antioch would have been like. But imagine 200, you're on that acre and not only that, but every single acre that we have has at least 200 people on it going through the exact same things with no sewage, with no no sky, everything's just there. That's what Antioch would have been like. For a Jew now to enter into that area that was what's called polytheistic, that means that they've worshipped a multitude of 
gods. They would create a god for anything that they wanted. There was probably, in that five square miles, probably 40,000 different gods that they would have worshipped, the complete opposite of having a, a one, a single god for the Jewish faith. Not to mention, was that spiritually unclean, but then anything that was physically unclean, especially as it pertains to feces, they actually have rules in the Bible about what you're supposed to do when you got to go number two. And, uh, and so they, it would have been just a horrific place for them. You guys tracking with that? Can I like let it go now? Okay, okay. I made it. I got it? All right, good. Thanks, Mark. Got it. And so that's what it would have been like for them, right, whenever they enter into this area. And so it would have been like crazy for not only just one Jew, but for a couple of Jewish men to come in who originally thought that unclean territories had unclean people that would make them unclean, to have them, those men, walk into this sort of a city, this unclean Antioch, and then to preach the gospel was literally unheard of. Like there was, that has never happened. That is something that did not happen. Historically speaking, that did not happen. And so they roll up in Antioch and they're preaching the gospel. Now, here's the thing about Antioch, because we read ourselves into the scripture, but you can't do that. Whenever you think about Antioch, we think like, oh, it's diverse, it's affluent, it's like New York, it's like, you know, you think about a busy airport maybe, and you have all this different diversity and ethnicity uh, running around. It was very diverse, very affluent, uh, very ethnically diverse, just to be clear. But whenever the architects built Antioch, they did not build it with that in mind, like there would be this cross-cultural reality that took place. So whenever they built Antioch, they built walls, kind of picturing you know, an acre of land. They built these walls set up and like Asians would stay in this corner. And if, now that there are Jews, Jews would stay in this corner and Africans would stay in this corner. So while it was very affluent, it was very segregated. It was like extreme racism, if you think about it, with a common language now. So you have affluency, yes and amen, but the city was designed for segregation. That was the purpose of the city. The idea, the worldview, the framework for inclusivity among races was not a thing in the known world during this time. You guys tracking with that? Okay, so you can't read that into the text. That's not true. What I just said is historically accurate. And so not only do you have all this segregation, you have all of these different gods that they would have worshipped as well. And so it's not that they had like, gosh, like let's say you couldn't um, get pregnant, then you would just come up with a fertility god, like we got fertility god Bob, and now you worship that. And or if you like the the harvest wasn't going well, you like oh, I'm going to come up with a rain god, boom, and then you create your own rain god or land god or sun god or whatever god you wanted to create. That was their world. And so this is important. I'm taking. We're almost there. Okay. They had all of these saviors that existed in Antioch, 40,000 of them, but they did not have a Lord. And so whenever the scripture says these men come into Antioch preaching Jesus as Lord, the author writes that on purpose. Like that's a very matter of fact statement that they would have come in and said, hey, I perceive here that you have all of these saviors. I perceive here that you, you care about the land, you care about fertility, you care about sex, you care about all these things, but you don't have a Lord that exists in Antioch. And we know who that Lord is. There is a one true God. And what happens whenever you submit to him as Lord is you will also submit to him as savior. And you think, yeah, that's what we believe. During this time though, for a Jewish person to enter into an Asian audience and say, hey, turns out you and me, we can worship the same God. Listen, had never been done. It had never been done, 
We're going to get into all this next week. Never happened. And what happens is they, like, the gospel takes up such deep root in this affluent, diverse, multi-ethnic city. They literally begin to tear the walls down and cross-culturally worshiping with one another. When we get further down in Acts here next week, he's going to say they called them Christians because they didn't know what else to call them. They're like, they're like Christ. Like you have all these different diverse pieces, I'm talking about places in the world coming together and they know the name of Jesus because he's the only one that ever came and said, I've come from the Jew and also the Gentile. I've come for the Jew and the ethne is the word for Gentile in the Greek. It means the nations. He's the only God that's ever represented that. There has never been a boom spike in any form of religion from a historical perspective like there was biblical Christianity where the gospel is truly being preached, church family. I don't mean talking at the culture. I mean preached to the culture. There is always gonna be change. People are always going to respond. Don't believe the lie that it's too urban, it's too progressive, it's too affluent. No, he's the only God that's ever said, I've come for all of that. I want all of that. I'm gonna redeem all of that. And the beauty of the gospel is that Asians didn't begin to look like Jews and Jews didn't begin to look like Africans. They learned how to worship God in their own cultural context, but in a way that was godly. Like the gospel should never rob you of your culture. If anything, it should magnify your culture. Why? Because he's the God of every language and the God of every tribe and the God of every nation. Just because we predominantly look the same in this room doesn't mean that God's not getting down in Africa right now or North City or somewhere else. We worship in a certain expression here because it's, culturally, it's a cultural context for us here. And even that we push against sometimes, don't we? I think most of that was free, so Sorry. If your price is, I found it. If your price is, I got 11 minutes, oh gosh. If your price is, <laughs> stop it, okay, stop. If your, if your price is self-preservation, okay, listen, if your price is self-preservation, and it is, listen, and it is. If your price is self-preservation, then the cost then is also just never seeing someone else's life changed by the gospel. Is that really worth it? What if we would have self-preserved 10 years ago? What would this room look like right now? I mean, God is sovereign and good, but he called and we responded. The reality is when it's self-preservation, we care so much about ourselves that we don't actually care enough to see someone else changed. And when you think about that, it makes sense. Because if I fall prey to the idol of self-preservation or reputation, whatever word you want to use there, if the, the price is self-preservation, if the idol is self uh, preservation, well, uh, and I, that means I believe that I have to be Lord and Savior. I have to do everything. I have to measure up. I have to keep the commands. I have to, I have to, I have to. It's about my reputation, the way people look at me, see me, understand me, experience me. Well, who's, who's the king in that moment? Well, that's me. And the reality is, is like, I don't have any power. You don't have any power. And so if we continue to fall prey to the idol of self-preservation, we believe in a powerless gospel which means then we believe in a powerless God, which then means why would I ever share that God with Mark? I don't believe he can work on Mark anyway. Right? And Mark's got a lot. He needs a lot, right? And so the reality is like in my unbelief, so y'all should be doing some gospel fluency as a curriculum. In my unbelief, I actually believe that I am Lord and Savior and I know what's best. The problem is self-preservation doesn't preserve anything. 
It just leads to death. Everything that you're trying to preserve is going to go away. It's going to fade away. The relationship is going to fade. The money is going to fade. There's going to be a day that comes where it's lights out. And you go, well, my family can benefit. My yeah, but you're not going to be here to see it. But Jesus will be sitting on the throne. That's the reality of the situation, right? And so in your mind, you serve a powerless God. Why would you ever, serve, why would you ever share a powerless gospel? It makes sense, right? Because you make the gospel about you, but we have no power. We bring nothing to the table. That's the beauty of the gospel, is we go, I can't keep the laws. I can't save Mark. I can't redeem anyone. I can't make the church grow. Oh, but the Lord can. By the power of the Holy Spirit, with the gospel as the presentation, this is what brings change. Ten years of faithfulness. We stick to the gospel. At the end of the day, our price, our price. I fall prey to that too, family, all right? Our price is self-preservation. And this is why the church, similar to the Jews, remain in their own territory. And they don't live on mission. And there is no reason that we should have unreached people groups in the Middle East 2,000 years after Jesus' resurrection. We have more money and people than we know what to do with. Idle self-preservation keeps us in our subdivisions. I had a dinner last night. I'm going to keep pushing this a little bit. I had a dinner last night uh, with church planners that, that we support as a church family. To be clear, these aren't like business transactions. These are our brothers. We have to our table. They have to... They have us over to their table. We are brothers, knitted at the soul, brothers. Paul Fernandes, some of you know, we planted in Belleville. Uh, Pastor Mike Bird, uh, who plants in North City, New Baden. Very difficult, tumultuous territory there. Uh, Mara Ramirez, who's here today, who moved his whole family from Mexico. Left everything they love to come to Antioch, so to speak. So he could plant a church in Fairmount City. I'm going to say some things here. It's not to guilt you. It's just to reveal the, this idol a little bit more for you. Like these men have been in our church for a year, over a year, post a year. Mike Bird's been here. We've been serving Mike Bird for eight years, I believe. We get up regularly, uh, and we invite you to serve those men and their families. Again, this isn't a show of hands. This isn't a guilt situation. This is just the reality of it. You know, Mara Ramirez has been here for how long, and, and how many people in a church of 600 have taken his wife out? and loved on her. Maybe it should cut us a little bit. She left everything that she knows. She is voiced that feels alone and isolating here. Like, who's took her out? A couple people, but out of 600, how many people have loved on that family? Well, then we got Mario, um, we have Mike, Pastor Mike Bird, who we got to have a meal with uh, yesterday. Yesterday, I had breakfast with him uh, last week. Hanging out with my bird. This is the first year they do this big Thanksgiving thing. This is the first year that they ran out of volunteers. They didn't have enough volunteers for their Thanksgiving feast they put on where they feed hundreds of people from the city. And he told me that, and I took personal responsibility. I was like, bro, there are more people at Heights than we know what to do with. We sh you should have had an abundance. Of I'm sorry, bro. I feel like I let him down. I didn't let him down, but I feel like I let him down. That's a hard, tumultuous, difficult Territory. So whenever you have questions about, you know, what's my family? What's going to happen to my family in New Bay? And what is, I don't want to be the only white person out there in New Bay. And what about my safety? What about this? It is a hard, dark, dangerous situation out there in New Baden. He told us a story where uh, he had a guy, he's got a brand new Toyota Tacoma. He had a guy walk up to his truck just a few weeks ago and was, pulls out a gun. He's like, I like that truck. And my bird looked at him and said, you better get away from my truck. 
He said, you hear what I said? He said, you about to feel what I said. <laughs> Had a gun on the inside of the door. The dude said, all right, OG. See ya. <laughs> just, just walked up. That's his life. Like, that's his, that is his life, you know? He doesn't, he doesn't have a concealed carry license just hoping something doesn't pop off in the hood. He has a concealed carry license for when it does. That's, those are real, so those are real questions to ask. What about my family? What about my safety? What about his family and his safety? The Lord has called him to that. You know, we have Paul Fernandes out there in Bell Vegas that planted a church, doing great. Gathered, they, got, they were standing room only for the last four weeks at that church, killing it, crushing it. Moment of conviction before you clap. How many of you saw that standing room only? That's a church that we support financially. We prayed to try to send people to. You can clap for him if you want to. Sorry, I don't want to steal your steal thunder. He is killing it and crushing it out there. Out of a church of 600 plus, how many have been there? Hey, we'll do your child care. Just, we're qualified. We'll do it. You see what I'm saying? You, yeah, Belleville, New Baden, Fairmont. For some of you, that's your Antioch. Right? And, and a failure to share the gospel right here locally, you better watch out because the Lord might pop you over to there. Right, just for your sanctification. So you look more like Jesus every day than you look like him right now. That is the, the point of that. Again, I'm not saying this to bring guilt, but rather to reveal that we're not so different than the Jews whenever it comes to just wanting to cling to our subdivision and our school districts. But what about the men and women that God calls faithfully into those areas? Do we not have the resources to help meet those needs? I don't want to ever be a church that just gives money to something because we're white middle class and we can afford to pay the bill. But rather, might we be a people that are so ridden with the truth and the efficiency of the gospel that we look at our brothers who've been called to plant churches in dark and hard territories and we go, here I am. Oh, the call of, what is it, in the Old Testament. Here I am, Lord, send me. I'll go, I'll put everything on the line. We've prayed about it, we've considered it, we've counted the cost, and now we're gonna go willingly, not because you have to get moved into a difficult situation or moved into a difficult culture, but rather because you're looking at the mission, you're going, God, I know what you've done in my life. I try to find all these other saviors through self-preservation. I, I got the job, I have the money, I have the girl, I have the guy, I got the kids. I have all these little saviors that make me feel something warm and good on the inside. Uh, but I'm not submitted to you as Lord. In this area, I want to submit to you as Lord God. Here I am, Lord. Send me out there. Uh, David said last week, whenever you have a man that, or a woman that has a mindset of to live as Christ, to die as gain, that's a dangerous mindset. That's a dang, you can't stop that person. Oh, may that be the posture that we have, church, for the next 10 years. To live as Christ, to die as gain, I'm all in on the mission. I'm gonna share the gospel everywhere I eat, work, play, learn. And so these men do not come in preaching at the culture. They come in and preaching to the culture. They're saying, here's how the gospel is better for you. Here's what Jesus has done for you. Here's how these saviors don't work. They're not coming and saying all pridefully, I got it all figured out, right? Like the church tends to do sometimes. You need to look like me and think like me. And once you look like me instead of Jesus, then we'll know that you've been saved. No, they come in and say, your cultural expression is different. It's different from mine, but oh, there's the, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's very God of God, God over all tribes, languages, and nations. Worship him, and you can do it in an expression that makes sense, so long as it fits godliness. That's what those men come to do. They preach the gospel. Look, self-preservation is going to kill you. It's going to kill you. It's not going to preserve anything. It's going to leave you alone, boxed in. 
Instead of getting to see the effective power and inner workings of the gospel, it's going to leave you believing you serve a powerless God because you're looking at yourself. Oh man, but when you take your eyes off yourself and you behold Christ, and you see that there was nothing about him that was preserved. Jesus did not fall prey to self-preservation. He had his kingdom. What does he do? He leaves his kingdom. He, has perfect, he walks in perfection. Why? To satisfy his father. Why? Because we could not do that. And then in perfection, he goes to the cross. And in going to the cross, oh, that's not self-preservation at all, is it? That's quite the opposite, yes? He is destroyed physically. He's destroyed spiritually. When he goes to the cross, he doesn't just go to the cross to die for sin. That's true. Yes and amen. But he goes to the cross to die for all of the effects of sin. Any level of effect that has ever had, every ripple effect of sin that has ever happened across all of humanity, that's what he takes into his body, thus cutting relationship with his father for a moment. For the first time in the history of time, Jesus is separated from his father. Why? So he can be united to you. He doesn't pursue self-preservation. He pursues being destroyed physically, destroyed spiritually. Why? For you. To gain you. Hebrews says the joy. Like there was a, a joyful reality for him in that moment. And what he saw was you and his joy. The church of Christ globally, not just in Collinsville. And he would say, oh, that's the gospel. And so in the midst of self-preservation, how do we get out of that? We look at the cross and we go, that's what it gets me. It just gets me further sin. Further mutilation, separation from the Father. Oh, but in Christ, who does not preserve anything but me, what do I get? Oh, I get joy and happiness and fulfillment and an eternity with him, an inheritance that's unfathomable. I get relationship. There's all these things that we get from him. What we need to do as a church family is respond to the gospel today. Not just as your savior that you can kind of put in a box with your retirement and your money and your relationships, and kind of pull them out, make you feel all warm and fuzzy on the inside. But submit to him also as Lord. Right? When you submit to him as per Savior, yes and amen. The only response you can have after you submit to him as Savior is this, command me. If everything is true of the gospel, command me. The kings don't make requests. They don't make suggestions. They give commands. As a Lord, he is king. As Savior, he is your personal, yes. Yes and amen. But as king, he said, go to the nations. Sometimes the nations are just in Belleville. Sometimes they're just in Collinsville. Regardless, we're called to go. Amen. We didn't hit that third point. Why don't you all stand up with me? Minute 27 over. Pretty good. I had a, I'm going to set you up for communion. I hear at Heights, we take communion together every week. Uh, you don't have to be a member of Heights, but you do need to respond to that gospel. Um, to Jesus as Lord and also as a savior, and I pray that you would. Uh, today might be the first day. Thank you. Uh, I was talking with a, a guy that goes to church here and his wife, they're in the room, and we were hanging out over New Year's Eve, and um, he's telling me some of his story, and so he's telling me about, just about his life, about his girlfriend before she became his wife, about their kiddos, and uh, the reality is, is I was sitting and listening, I'm like, man, this dude had everything, Right? He had the pretty girl, he had a job, had a career, great kids as far as I can tell anyway, I don't, I don't have to parent them, but great kids, kind of had the whole thing. And so while he was talking, I was like, man, your life looks dramatically different now than it did seven years ago. You know, and you've been at Heights for a year, what gives? When, when did you, I said specifically, bro, when did you profess faith in Jesus? 
And he said, this is kind of cool for Jeff to hear, but uh, he said, you know, one day during a call to confession, while Jeff was leading, uh, I realized that I, I hadn't surrendered everything to Jesus. And so I did, and as I did, man, it just broke me. I think that's the reality of a lot of people in this room. Kind of raised in the Christian faith, believing that Jesus is a Savior, but probably not submitted to him as Lord. So I just want to beg you to respond today to say he's both. Like he is a Savior that saves you, but he's also a Lord that determines your future, determines your path, your present, your past, your present. You're called to respond to him. And so if you can relate to my man that I'm talking about here, I want to invite you into communion here to do that. To say, God, I I have believed in you and Savior. As Savior, I've taken you out of box when I need you. I'll put you back in there whenever I don't. Uh, But today, God, I, I think I need you just to open me up and help me to believe you're actually the Lord of my life, the King of my life. Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. I'll follow you. I'll do whatever you call me to do. And then just let the Spirit do the work that the Spirit does on you in that moment, man. And as you come forward, you get to be reminded of the gospel, right? You get to see the bread of Christ, the, the bread which represents Christ's body, sorry. You get to see the cup which represents Christ's blood spilt for you. And as you come forward, as you're standing in that line, you're looking at the opposite of self-preservation. Or you're being reminded of the broken body and the blood that was spilled. We do this every week. Don't let it be a religious event. Uh, may it be a redemptive event like a moment for redemption, a moment where you get to believe the gospel, trust in Jesus, respond, be baptized, all the things that come with the commands of God as well. And then know whenever you fail those commands, because the enemy right now will say something like, you're not good enough to keep the commands. You just look at him and go, you're right. That's why he's a savior. He's the Lord. And when I fail him, oh God, I'm gonna fail him. Oh, he's gonna pick me up again. Redeem me all over again. Wash me again so that I might charge the gates of hell with the passion of Christ another day. Respond to the gospel today, church family. Let me give you 1 Corinthians. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Listen here. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I pray today, my prayer for you this week and right now, I mean, as you come to communion, the Holy Spirit just washes self-preservation away so you can live a life of reckless abandonment for your Lord and for your Savior. Amen? All right, come forward when you're ready.